Hello, this is Leslie Gorka-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Josh Galperin about administrative law. In this episode, I speak with Josh Galperin, currently the visiting associate professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and I am proud to announce, will be joining me as a faculty member at the Elizabeth Palp School of Law in the fall. We're thrilled to have him join us. Our discussion provides insight into administrative law. In particular, we talk about the role of government as a rulemaking body that shapes how government operates. It's a great discussion for those of you currently enrolled in administrative law and for any student who has yet to take the course. We strongly suggest you take it. Here's my discussion with Professor Galbrin. Thanks so much for um, joining us. I am really excited to have you with us. And um, I know that you are deeply committed to environmental law and the environmental science. I, I guess I could say environmental sciences, if that's fair to say, too. Yeah, um, but you're also an admin specialist. So I want to talk a little bit about administrative law. And I will be honest, I know nothing about administrative law. I didn't even take it in law school, and I really regret that I didn't. Um, Although I did work for the city of New York, so I did read rules, but let's talk a little bit about rules and rulemaking and guidance. Um, so can you set the stage for us first? Why do we need to know about rulemaking and what is it we need to know about rulemaking? Yes, that's a good question, right? So when, I mean, let's actually let's take it a step even further back because when people are thinking about what is, you know, what is administrative law? A lot of law students, you know, maybe it's for you, Leslie, this is a, <laughs> this is a useful front primer. That's like, right. That's right. Administrative law even, because a lot of people, you know, legal experts, law students don't fully get that. And, and the basic answer is that administrative law is the law that governs the day-to-day -day operations of the government. So, you know, I mean, yes, there's constitutional law, but that's more about the, what, what the government generally can do and what the government generally cannot do and how the government is structured. So administrative law is like the, the fills in the like the little pieces of where constitutional law leaves open. What can what does the government do on a day to day basis? And of course, we all know. Well, we, I, we, I think we read it in the news, which is great. You know, admin law is in the news every day. We read about rulemaking. One of the major things that agencies that the government does is it it makes rules. It makes policies for how the government operates. And so that's really important. Now. It's not the only thing that agencies do. Um, you know, and I, I just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but I'm thinking too, when you talk about constitutional law, so I'm thinking that there's three areas of law, basically. The constitution gives us law, um, the legislature gives us law, and that would be the ad, ad law, right? The administrative law. And then there's the judicial law, which is the common law, right? So we're talking about kind of that middle sector where our elected officials are creating these laws that regulate them more than they regulate us. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes and no, I guess. Okay. <laughs> when we're talking about ad law, there's a whole section of administrative law that is constitutional administrative law, which is mostly about separation of powers. And that's really interesting. And perhaps I can talk about that another time, but we'll mm -hmm. put that to the side. So there is a constitutional component to administrative law for sure. But most administrative law is, um, is statutory law. So that is most administrative law the law that actually governs how agencies operate, that administrative law comes right. from Congress. And it's, and it's the Administrative Procedure Act. The Administrative Procedure Act or the APA, it says on a day-to-day -day basis how agencies are supposed to operate on some of the big important things they're doing. There's lots of judge-made 
filling into the details. So there's, you know, technically there is no administrative common law, but practically administrative law, the, the APA is like the constitution of administrative law. And there's lots of vague language and details that need filling in. And so there's a huge body of, of, of judge-made law, primarily from the DC circuit, that helps us understand how to interpret the Administrative Procedure Act. So to that extent, 100%, administrative law is, is primarily legislative statutory law with judges filling in the details. But that, that's the law that governs how agencies behave. When agencies themselves make law, that's law that is public facing, that impacts you and me and, and all kinds of, you know, the public, regulated communities and public interest organizations. So when we talk about administrative law, we can talk about the law that governs the agencies, but also the law that the agencies make. And normally, okay. you know, I think this is a really useful distinction for students, especially. Normally, when we say administrative law, we mean the law that governs the agencies and how they operate and how they make rules, as opposed to saying the rules themselves. The rules usually aren't the rule makings that agencies do, those aren't really administrative law. They're governed by administrative law, but they, and this is, I guess, an important point for this discussion, but they, those rules that agencies make, those are just law. Those are law as much as the statutes are law or as much as the constitution is law. Obviously right. they are subordinate to statutes in the constitution, but, but they are law and that's why they're important. Right, all right, so that, I mean, that's super helpful and, and that puts it in context. So then my next question is, you know, it's, students are starting to register. So yeah, even though we're gonna talk about a, a substantive area or doctrinal area, let's just talk for a second about what to expect when you take administrative law. Are you looking at the law that is regulating my conduct or agency, agency um, not agency, public interest group conduct? Are you looking at how um, the power that those who are making the law have to create these laws? You're looking at the power that policymakers have. When you take okay. administrative law, so I okay. caveat my administrative law teaching in in two ways, uh, at least two ways. Probably lots of caveats throughout the semester. But <laughs> I, start with, I start with two. Um, one is we're learning federal administrative law, so we're learning the law that governs federal agencies: the EPA, the, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Security and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Aviation. Uh, authority, the USDA, Department of Agriculture, there's, you know, I, I, I don't have the number at my fingertips, but the number of agencies is a huge number. Um, and that's most federal, federal employees, they work for agencies of different kinds. So we're looking at, talking about the federal administrative law that governs what all of those federal agencies do. States have their own administrative law, it usually mimics federal law in some in many ways, but we don't learn in administrative law in law school. Uh, we don't learn state administrative law, right. federal. although there are plenty of law schools that offer state administrative law classes as well. Um, and, and the other caveat is I try to give students important and some, some significant details of the actual rules and substantive issues that we're talking about. We talk a lot about highway safety in administrative law and in rulemaking and how judges review rules, judicial review and administrative law. We talk a lot about highway safety. For example, uh, we talk about environmental laws. We talk about, um, you know, maybe a case I, that's relevant to some of the discussion we might have today. We talk about like building stadiums and concert venues and things like that and the law that regulates that. Um, and and I, I want to explain to students 
the substance. You know, here's what's happening in this case, but I don't expect them to learn that. That's not going to be in the exam. They don't need to understand the rules that EPA is making. They don't need to understand the clean power plan and how it regulates climate pollutants in order to understand administrative law. Right. I won't test them on the rules. I will test them on, I won't test them on the rule makings. I'm testing them on the judicial doctrine and the Administrative Procedure Act and things of that nature. And that's why I think that's why this is an important class. And actually, I think we used to require it. I don't think we do, but we strongly encourage it now is that it teaches you a skill of reading statutes and codes that you don't necessarily get from those 1L classes. And, and, and again, you know, we said this, that, that this is just people think about constitutional law and people think about the common law, but there really is statutory law and administrative law. And so I, I do see the value in learning a skill that is not necessarily um, taught in the first year. And to your point, that's the skill you're teaching. Yes. So let's get let's get into the nitty gritty here. If you're teaching it, what's one of the topics that the students have difficulty with? And can you walk me through it? Yeah, so I think one of the m- most interesting topics that the students have difficulty with is this understanding the distinction between the different things that agencies can do and the different ways that courts will review the different types of agency actions. So that doesn't mean much in the abstract. So I'll try to put a finer point on it. So agencies do basically four things on a regular basis. One, which we've already started talking about is they make rules, rulemaking. That is the agencies make law. Um, And I can talk a little bit more about what that exactly means in a second, but they make rules, they make law. Another thing that agencies do is they issue guidance. So this is not lawmaking strictly speaking, but it's helping the public understand what their laws, what their rules mean, how, how the agency is going to enforce the rules, um, uh, how, they, how they're going to interpret, interpret sort of open language, open terms in the rules and so forth. They also, agencies enforce law. So in that sense, they do like, they're like little DOJs, um, little attorneys general. They, they will fine people for violating rules. They will um, do investigations and gather data to understand if people are in compliance or not. They enforce rules. They, they will do internal fines. They will also just, you know, some agencies are empowered to bring suit in federal court. So um, you, you might find a case where the Environmental Protection Agency, which is, is authorized to uh, represent itself in federal courts, the Environmental Protection Agency might sue a coal plant and actually be the be the, not really a plaintiff, but like the plaintiff in that lawsuit. So that's enforcement. And then they do adjudication. They've got their own sort of mini court systems. Um, And so they will, you know, if they're not bringing a case in federal court, they might resolve disputes internally within the agency. Mm -hmm. And so some of the distinctions there are fairly clear. You know, the, 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 the distinction between making a rule, making a law and adjudicating a dispute, that can be fairly clear. Rulemaking is prospective, it is general, and it's about creating policy as opposed to resolving individual facts. Mm -hmm. Whereas adjudication takes the policy is already settled and it asks whether the facts of a given situation meet the criteria of a given policy, right? So, you know, this is maybe a helpful reminder. I think students probably learn this in in con law, when they're studying mm-hmm. procedural due process, they learn about the Londoner and biometallic cases, um, which are sort of a procedural due process constitutional question. They've actually been, that, that the distinction in these cases has actually been transported into, into administrative law. Uh, and it's, it's the tool that courts and practitioners 
and scholars use to distinguish between rulemaking and adjudication where um, I can never remember which case is which off the top of my head, but I think I put it in my notes so that I can, I can remember. Okay. You know, we can, we can, I, I add it. So not to worry if you want to take a minute and figure it out, uh, but <laughs> I'll, I'll this just, is great. I can just say real quickly, this is basically, you've got these two cases where in one case, the city of Denver is imposing a tax and the law says, um, you can, you can assess this tax specifically on the landowners, on the property owners who are getting a special benefit from the projects that you're, you're using the tax to fund. You know, you're going to build a new sewer system. Um, those who benefit from the sewer system, they should get the tax should be assessed on them. And the, and the people who are getting the tax assessed sued and said, well, you need to have hearings to make sure that we're actually benefiting here. You need to look at the specific facts, right? And make sure that the facts actually um, show that we should be taxed more. And so that, and the court says, yes, we agree. There has to be some process, some procedural due process. In the follow-up case, Denver says, we're raising taxes by 40% across the board. And a bunch of landowners say, ah, but in the earlier case, you said, um, you said there should be hearings and procedural due process. And there the court says, no, because there's no individual fact-based determinations going okay, on. Okay, get it, I rate, see. Right, and so that's, that's basically the distinction between a rulemaking, everybody's being taxed 40% and an adjudication is property owner A actually benefiting from the project and therefore should they be taxed more? So would you say that every time there is a rule that has a different impact on different citizens that there has to be an adjudication? Or is it more like like if someone brings a, brings a challenge to it? I mean, yeah. how does that work? So, so that's a much more complex question than it probably is. <laughs> Sorry. All the details, but there is this history of you know, do you need to sometimes use an adjudicatory type of process to make rules? That is, right. agencies can operate like courts and they can make basically internal policy based on case-by-case -case decision making. Um, and some, some agencies in some very narrow circumstances, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, for instance, it has to do basically a trial-like process in order to make a rule. Um, but by and large, that's not the case. The courts have said that the Administrative Procedure Act does not require case-by-case -case adjudication to make new rules. If the rules are prospective and they're mm -hmm. using what we might call sort of legislative facts, general information to make determinations, then they don't need to have an adjudicatory process. Then they can just make a rule the same way Congress, not procedurally the same way, but in parallel to the way Congress makes the law. We, we know what we can look at costs and benefits generally and the dangers and so forth and, and make a rule based on that type of information. But those can be subject to challenges too, right? I mean, sure. yeah. So, okay. so people can challenge rules. Um, oftentimes you challenge the rule directly um, in, uh, in, um, in, the, uh, uh, in the circuit courts. You don't have a trial-like process. It's all debating more legal, legal issues around the rule. But yeah, mm -hmm. you can challenge a rule as an individual. If you have standing, if you're injured by the rule in some way, you can challenge that rule in courts. Um, this is really helpful. Great. So I'm going to take a step back. My students know that I love kind of putting law to fact. And you said that there were four things agencies do. And so the first thing the agencies do is they make rules, right? Yep. So I know we've kind of talked about it, we've skirted around it, but give me, maybe an, a, the FDA, you know, that seems to be someone we're deeply concerned with right now mm -hmm. <laughs> is waiting for their final approvals on certain drugs. But what would be an example of a rule that an agency would make? So what would be an agency and what would be the example of the rule that agency would make? So let me try to use the FDA, that's a perfect example. So when you say they're approving a drug, that is an adjudication. 
uh, they are making a specific fact-based determination about the pros and cons of a given drug and determining whether that drug is eligible for, whether that vaccine is eligible for public distribution, public use. That's an adjudication. The rulemaking, and by the way, I'm not an expert in FDA law, so I'm, this is an abstract example. It may or may not be true, but it's a useful I'm, I'll think it's true, not to worry. <laughs> and all the people listening should know that I'm definitely right about this. Okay. Um, the, 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 the adjudication is, is maybe based on an earlier legislative type rule that the FDA has made, where they say, in order to approve a, drug, uh, a vaccine for emergency youth authoriz use authorization, it has to meet, the drug has to meet these four criteria, right? So, so then, so that's the rule. Here are the four criteria we're gonna consider whenever, whenever we're assessing an emergency use application. And then when they actually do the assessment, that assessment applying the facts of a specific drug to the criteria of the rule, that's the adjudication. Aha. Uh -huh. So this, I just have my Oprah aha moment, which as we get farther away from Oprah's television show, people know less and less, but um, that makes perfect sense to me. So one of the things that the agency does is they're going to make a rule and the rule is basically going to say, when we have to deal with specifics in implementing programs through our agency or implementing programs that our agency is in charge of implementing, we're going to lay out the rules by which we're going to follow in order to do that implementation. And then when we have to go to do the implementation, we're gonna make sure that the implementation is done in a way that's consistent with the rules. That's exactly right. And, and so that's great. And so as a individual, um, if I'm waiting for drug approval, right? Then I'm, I'm, I'm not part of the government, I'm just me. There's two things I could do. I could say, I could challenge the rule by saying this rule, I could say, I guess the rule's unconstitutional, right? You could say um, constitutional or what, so an important step that I, that I didn't bring up yet is the FDA makes the rule that says, here are the four criteria we're going to consider, mm -hmm. but they need to have authority to make that rule in the first place. In other right. words, Congress has to authorize them to make that rule. So Congress passes the um, Pure Food and Drug Act or whatever law it might be. And in that law, Congress says more or less, um, uh, no vaccines, no drugs shall be marketed unless the Food and Drug Administration shall have authorized them. So basically in that language, Congress is saying drugs can only be marketed if FDA has said it's okay. And that implies the authority for FDA to make a rule saying, here is how we will decide when it is okay to market a drug. So you could challenge it constitutionally. You could also say that the rule they've made, the criteria they're using are not in line with con congressional authorization. Congress never authorized them or Congress only wanted them to consider certain factors and they're considering other factors. Mm -hmm. Those are ways that you might challenge a rule. All right, so so staying with this and just so, so if I understood you correctly, you said there's four things agencies can do. They can make rules, they can issue guidance, they can enforce laws and they can adjudicate, right? Yeah. All right, so as a law student, I'm gonna say, all right, so I have the FDA. The first thing the FDA can do is it can make a rule. And the rule is that it is okay to give emergency use authorization if the drug meets X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing that the agency is gonna do is they're gonna say, Pfizer, Moderna, when you are doing these, these, when you are creating these drugs, make sure 
that you follow these rules and principles. So they're giving guidance to the drug manufacturers. Is that correct with the issue guidance part? Yeah, so, so guidance, guidance is, is distinct from a rule in a couple of important ways, but the okay. way you described it's basically right. So let me start by reiterating that. I mean, basically you've got, you've got the law from Congress and that authorizes the agency to act. Here, the FDA mm -hmm. is our example. So Congress authorizes an agency to act. An agency acts by making a rule and the rule regulates the public in various ways. And it tells drug companies what they must do in order to get a, a, an approval. But of course, a rule, it, it, just like a, a statute from Congress, it doesn't have all the details filled in necessarily. Right, right. So, right. so sometimes agencies need to help fill in the details. And here's mm -hmm. a really interesting, like, basic truth about administration that we often overlook when we're talking about the doctrine. I mean, a, a lawyer for Pfizer might call the FDA, uh, you know, one of the folks at FDA and say, look, we're working on our emergency use verification uh, uh, application. The, um, the, the scientists are asking me these questions. The pharmacists are asking me these questions. What, when you say, and again, as a caveat, I don't actually know FDA law very well, so I'm making right, up- Right, 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 but that's okay, yeah. So if, if you say, um, so the lawyer, might, the lawyer for Pfizer might say, when you say that one of the criteria is um, significant public health benefits to the approval, well, what exactly do you mean by that? And the lawyer for the FDA might say, well, here's, you know, here's some cases that specifically describe that, you know, do your research, lawyer for Pfizer, or the lawyer, she might say, I don't, I don't know. Um, let me, let me talk and see what we mean by this. It's a new rule. We haven't really thought about it yet. So basically you can think of some of guidance is just like FAQs, facts, right? Like right. agencies get questions, they get emails, they get phone calls. And so they just need a way to answer the questions they know are going to come. And that's, basically what a guidance document is. It's a process for agencies to fill in some of the gaps that the rules haven't answered. Got it. All right, and so, so that, that makes sense. And then, so we, we, did the, we made the rules, we issued the guidance, and now we're gonna enforce the law. And that means that we're gonna make sure that those who are seeking approval from these agencies um, follow the rules that are created or the I don't know what a word for lesser, something other than rules, you know, rules, I'll say sometimes in quotations, um, and that's enforcement. So that these agencies have enforcement power to make sure that people are abiding by, corporations are abiding by, governments abiding by, whomever it is, is abiding by the rules that were created by the agency. Exactly. And then finally, adjudication comes in in kind of, well, why don't you re-explain re yeah, well, I mean, that, this is, you're getting to sort of the, the rub here that's really interesting. So adjudication comes in because there's basically different paths that an agency can follow to enforce or make sure that it is upholding its own rules. It can do enforcement externally. Well, it can do enforcement by just like gathering data, asking questions of, of, um, of the regulated parties, basically the kind of things that we think of, you know, uh, ADA is doing, or even like, you know, at the local level, like a, a detective, right? Just like gathering information, asking questions, and in its own way, that's enforcing the law. They can also enforce the law by bringing the lawsuit, saying you have violated our, you've either violated a statute that we are in charge of enforcing, or you've violated one of our rulemakings um, under a statute, and we're going to enforce it. And that can come through 
external court, you know, Article Three court processes, or it can be internal adjudication where the agency says, um, we're, we're issuing a, you know, an agency complaint, and we want you to come to the agency and explain to us why you shouldn't be fined, and we're going to have an administrative law judge sort of go through a court-like process to debate the facts and so forth within the agency. So there's, there's two enforcement paths. But um, the reason that the difference between rulemaking and guidance is really important and interesting is because rulemaking has the force of law, as I said earlier, just like the Constitution or like a statute, it's the law. So a court can, can put somebody in jail for violating a rule or a court can issue a fine or any number of things, take away a license. An agency can do the same thing when it's enforcing a rule, but it can't do the same thing when it's enforcing a guidance document, generally speaking. Guidance documents, they do not have the force and effect of law in the same way the rule does. And that's sometimes very, that's a point of the sticking point for students. That's where it's, it's tricky. And not so much that basic premise that the rule is law and the guidance document is not law, but how do we know which is which really? That can sometimes become difficult. And how does a student know which is which? Right. So <laughs> the reason it's so interesting is because we don't really know exactly what the answer is to that question. <laughs> okay. Um, the courts haven't given us a clear answer. So there's a, there's a couple different ways to think through it. And, it. and it starts with recognizing that there's actually two types of guidance. So guidance is actually an umbrella term. Under guidance, we have policy documents or policy statements, and we have interpretive rules. And so to take a step back, this is all important because rulemaking is hard. I mean, so, you know, if, if agencies want to fill in the blanks, right, that's what we're talking about here. How do they fill in the blanks, the things that the rules haven't yet fully articulated? How do they fill in those blanks? Well, they can, they can just make a new rule to fill in the blank, no problem, except that the rulemaking process is actually hard. And so that's something the students get stuck on sometimes because we call mm -hmm. it formal rulemaking. It is technically what, what almost always happens in rulemaking at the federal level is informal or notice and comment rulemaking. That sounds easy. Oh, it's informal, easy. It's right. actually not easy. It's, it's a lot to it. You got to issue the rule. You got to explain what you're doing. You've got to have a notice period. You've got to accept comments from the public. You have to respond to comments. You have to look at the science. It's a, it's a big process, which by the way, I think is really important and valuable, but it's hard for agencies to issue rules. It's not like snapping their fingers. Mm -hmm. um, so they can issue these guidance documents without going through the, that notice and comment process. So the guidance documents are a fast way to answer certain questions. So, that, so that's important. I think that helps us, doesn't help yeah. us distinguish between which is which, but it's why the distinction is so important. So, so then we recognize, so uh, the rules that are exempt from this notice and comment process are guidance documents. And I probably shouldn't even call them rules. I should say the agency actions that create policy, but are exempt from the notice and comment rulemaking process are guidance documents or policy statements and interpretive rules. So rule, inter, uh, guidance, excuse me, policy statements are statements that basically explain how an agency is going to use its discretion and that's left after Congress and the agency itself have cabined discretion through statutes and rules. And then interpretive rules are agencies, they're a type of guidance document in which agencies attempt to um, more clearly articulate what a given phrase or word in a statute or in a rule means. So it's exactly what it sounds like. They're interpreting a specific 
piece of language. Um, that's an interpretive rule and a guidance is saying, here's how we expect to use our discretion. I see. I got it. I got it. I, it, you know, it's interesting. It's very linear in a way, you know, you can follow it through. This is so helpful. Um, I truly think I understand it. Anything else you think a student needs to know? Um, you know, I guess I, I, I'm going to take a step back myself and I look at it almost like a tree with branches. And if yep. you get to this branch, you have to um, interpret that. And I do want to say before we close, and you may have something else to share, that it really is one of the most important classes you could take in law school, because as we said before, you're learning a skill that you're not necessarily learning in other classes. Um, anything else you think the students need to know on this one area? Well, there's a lot more that students should know in this one area, <laughs> but I think, I think this is the place to leave it. R rules are are laws that the agency can enforce on its own. You don't need to, if the rule is a valid rule, you don't need to prove anything in order, you know, you only need to prove facts. You don't need to prove any, that any policy is valid if you're dealing with, if you're enforcing a rule. But when you've got a guidance document, whether it's an interpretive rule or whether it's a, um, a policy statement, in either case, a guidance document, the agency needs to basically take that to court and prove its, its validity independently. So that's, you know, that's an extra step in the enforcement process for an agency. And that's, that's where the, the difference lies. And that's why agencies want to have these documents because they're important. They help them make the case, but they don't want them to be rules because then they have to go through the whole rulemaking process. So there's a lot of push and pull and balancing between priorities here. And if you can get a sense of how this works in, in the reality in, in an agency, it's actually a lot easier to understand the emerging doctrine on the distinction. It's kind of like an Apprendi problem where you have sentence enhancements and you have to prove certain things beyond a reasonable doubt. But if you label them sentence enhancements, you get away without having yeah, to prove that. You, know, you get away without the jury out having to prove it. So that's yeah. That's a good example. Can I, uh, oh, can I let me give a, yeah. Like, yeah. we're not going on too long. And I guess you can always cut it out if we're going on too long. But yeah. a short example that I think fits with what you've just said. So, um, a long time ago, Congress authorized the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to, um, to prevent, quote, unfair trade practices, something like that. Um, un I think unfair trade practices. So the, the FTC can always go to court and say, um, we think what you're doing is unfair, and here's why we think what you're doing is unfair. And, and so, for example, uh, earlier in the last century, they said, we think that it's unfair for a gas station to sell gas with fancy names like super gas or extra clean without some objective way of knowing what that actually means. So we think it's unfair not to have the octane ratings that we're all used to on the gas pumps today, unless you're from New Jersey, in which case you don't look at gas pumps and that's fine. But <laughs> if you're from anywhere else, except for, I right. guess, Oregon, maybe, but you look at- But let's just say that in New Jersey, my home state, not only do they pump it for you, but it's also cheaper than anywhere else. But anyway, yes. True. Although less today than it used to be, right? Yeah, yeah. have gone up. Um, so the octane rating is, is an objective way of knowing what kind of gas you're getting. So the, the FTC could just say, um, Every time we find a gas station that doesn't post octane ratings, we're going to say, we think that's unfair. And then when they go to court, they have to prove, one, that not posting an octane rating meets the definition of unfair that Congress has established. And they need to prove that this particular gas station actually hadn't posted octane ratings. And so maybe they need to 
the proving they haven't posted them is pretty easy. They just, you know, get a picture and show that they're not there. Proving that it's actually unfair, you may need to bring in a witness who says, I have no idea what super gas means, et cetera. That's a lot of work. So if the FTC can have a rule and the rule says very explicitly, not posting an octane rating is an unfair trade practice. Then when they go to court, they only need to do one thing. They only need to, they say, here is the law. The law now is lack of octane ratings equals unfair. All we need to prove is that this gas station did not post octane ratings. Much easier. They can take care of that legislative type policy determination very quickly with a rule. And then it, that's the law in each case. So, so that's the basic idea. But of course, when they say not posting octane ratings means uh, that it is unfair, people might say, this does not happen, but they might say, well, what does octane rating mean? What does posting mean? How big does the posting have to be? And then perhaps instead of making a, a whole new rule, the FTC can just say, well, look, when we say posting, we mean on the pump, at least 24 point font or something like that. Right. Maybe they do that in a rule or maybe they do it in a guidance document. And if they do it in a guidance document, they, they, they might still have to prove they have another level of argument, right? They can't just say, well, this gas station didn't post it properly because our guidance document says it must be 24 point font. They have to independently make that proof that 24 point font is the right interpretation of posting because um, they haven't actually made a rule. That isn't the law. It's just right. gas stations. If you want to avoid the fight, just use 24 point font. So let me, I, so, and we really do have to end it just a moment, but I, know. Well, I, I have, this, no, 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 no. It's great. And I get I, excited I was, about administrative law. It's wonderful. This is such a joy. Um, why wouldn't you just always make, if you're an agency, why don't you just always make a rule? Why did, would you ever make guidance? Right. Well, two, I mean, I think there's two things. One, again, rules are harder work. Uh, okay. They're, they're more subject to challenge on their own substance, right? Uh, the gas stations might say, we don't like this rule, it's more work for us. We're gonna challenge the rule as bad policy. Um, mm -hmm. So they're subject to challenge, whereas a guidance document isn't because it's not law. Um, and of course mm -hmm. the process of making the rule is hard. So that's, that's one answer. It's just, there are risks to making rules. There's time commitments and there's risks of litigation. The other reason to not make a rule is, uh, it, it, it's not a reason, it's a, it's a retrospective reason. They might just not have thought about certain things, right, in the rulemaking process. Got so you might have thought, we've got everything covered here in our octane rating rule. And we even said 24 point font, but uh-oh, it turns out we never said exactly what height it has to be posted. Uh, is, is, you know, or we said it has to be plainly visible. Visible to who? Somebody in the driver's seat, somebody standing up, somebody in a wheelchair, somebody, you know, all these, there's, there's an infinite number of things that we can't know about when we're making policy at the legislative level, or at the agency level. And so the guidance helps fill, fill in those gaps without the, without the level of time and resources necessary for making a whole new rule. Got it, got it. I, I've learned a lot. I really appreciate it. I'm certain the students will look too. But the biggest thing I've learned other than your enthusiasm and ability to explain is wonderful is that you really do need to take administrative law. So registration is yeah. coming up student listeners. And I think that that's another class we talked last um, a couple podcasts ago about the importance of employment and labor law, which I also think is important, but I really want to put a plug for administrative law. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And so that's my discussion with Professor Galbrin. I want to again give a plug for administrative law. As we discussed, most 1L experiences focus on common law. Administrative law gives you the experience of learning about rulemaking authority and policy. 
A reminder, as you head into finals, this and all of our podcasts are available for free at www.lawdefact.com. A majority of my discussions with professors across the country take a deep dive into doctrinal issues on which you will be tested. You can reach us at lawdefact.gmail.com with any suggestions for upcoming episodes. Best of luck as you start to think about finals and have a good day.